So Mark 15, verse 42, it was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, so as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he had already died. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. Well, as we finish um, this series in Mark, we've been in Mark right the way through this academic year, I want us to, to ground these last few verses in the reality of daily life, what it means to be a day-by-day disciple, because I think that is what Mark wants us to do. And we've seen it week on week, do you remember, if you've been here, we've asked three different questions, not every time, but lots of the time, we've asked, who is Jesus, what did he come to do, and what does it mean to follow him? Three really helpful keys to unlock Mark's gospel. And as we reach the end of the gospel, as Mark closes the curtains for us, also those questions help us know something of what it means to follow the risen Jesus. These verses, particularly in chapter 16, are are a kind of dot, dot, dot. So what? What comes next? Mark says, now it's over to you, to me. So what we'll do is we'll look at these verses under two headings and I'll give you a kind of flyover first to say where we're going to go and then we'll come back again through and think about what it really means. Look at them in more depth. The first thing to say is that following Jesus is founded on fact. And so as we go through the first time, I want us to particularly note that the little details, the eyewitness stuff, the reality of the account... And then secondly, just to zoom in really on verse 7 to 8, because there we get a number of discipleship themes through Mark's Gospel converging together, coming together in one place, various threads and ideas that have been weaving their way through, and suddenly it's as if they're, they're tied into a knot at the end. As we see what it means to follow him, now he has been risen. The second point then will be following Jesus is all about him, which, which sounds obvious, But it's helpful to remember that in a country where you can still just about live with the remnants of our Christian culture or the background that's been here for years. Too easily people can still think that being a Christian is about a lifestyle choice or something we do along with other hobbies or 
something I force into my week with everything else. So it's an interesting question to ask, how much of being a Christian for me is about Jesus? What does that actually mean? How much of my daily discipleship is about Jesus, or just culture that I've picked up? I think we'll see in 16, 1-8, particularly verses 7 and 8, it is all about him. It's eyes fixed on him, it's living for him, being led by him, following him. But firstly, following Jesus is founded on facts. Why does this matter? I want to say this matters because, because it equips us to speak to our friends of Christ, helps us to have confidence that this is a historical thing, but also it's to encourage us when we're doubting, when it's hard to be a Christian, when we're just not quite sure. Sometimes maybe you're like me and you think, have I got this right? Is this, is this really true? Is this whole thing just been dreamt up and I've been duped? Well, at those times we can come back to the resurrection, to the foundation of our faith. Personally, I find it very helpful to do that over time. To go back to basics, to go back to the foundations again. But as well, it will help us speak to others. We'll speak to friends. We were chatting about this in the office this week, and it came up last week as well as we looked at those verses in chapter uh, chapter 15. Whilst it can help us talk to friends, we've got to remember that our friends are not neutral. Our friends don't want to believe. I I came across this quote this week. Um, If I engage with you on social media, you may already have heard it, so forgive me for that. Act surprised. Um, But it's it's from a philosopher called uh, Aldous Huxley. He's a humanist, an author. And he, he writes with extraordinary honesty about why he didn't want the world to have meaning. He says this, he says, the philosopher, speaking of himself, the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. He says, for myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. Do you see, so he says... I didn't want to believe in God because I wanted to be free to do what I wanted to do. So as we have verses like this in front of us, it's great to have the evidence, it's great to have the facts there, it's great to be able to engage with friends. But remember, they're not neutral, and so pray for them because they don't want to believe. Mark does say that he wants it to be founded in history and facts. It's not a fairy story. So let's have a look at that. The first thing he does... Is he says, chapter 15, you can put it in your diary, verse 42. He makes it very clear what is happening, when it is happening, which means, which means if you were in the right place at the right time, you could have seen it with your own eyes. This is not just a fairy story, it happened in time and space, says Mark. So verse 42, it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, that's Friday evening, when the Sabbath, and then 16 verse 1, when the Sabbath was over, Saturday evening, and then very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, that's Sunday morning. Mark says, you can put it in your diary. This is real, it happened. And it wasn't just 
Uh, it wasn't as if there were no um, people there. People were there. And so he focuses on two individuals in particular, or two groups of people, two encounters. The first one, verse 43 to 46, so this happened in history and Joseph of Arimathea was there. What do we know of Joseph? Not a huge amount. We know he was a religious man, a member of the Jewish ruling council, it seems. We know he was a man of standing, therefore, a man of respect, of of honour. It's likely that he had his own tomb and therefore he lived near Jerusalem and it's likely he was rich. And so many see Isaiah 53 verse 9, the prophecy there being fulfilled. Jesus was assigned a grave with the rich. But it's strange, as far as I can tell, and the commentaries don't help much, we don't exactly know where Arimathea was. Which is interesting. Outside the Bible there is no mention of it. Best theories seem to be that it's either Ramathiam Zophim in Ephraim, the birthplace of Samuel, or maybe Ramlah in Dan or Rama in Benjamin. They all sound a bit like Aramathia. We don't exactly know where he came from. The thing that's striking though is he's an interesting character to have at the end of the Gospel. Where there has been so much conflict with the religious establishment. So much goading of Jesus, so much desire to kill him, he's not the kind of guy necessarily you would expect to see. He's someone who seems to be generous and brave. As he backs and follows Jesus. He comes to Pilate, he prepares the body, he he is generous. There's significant personal cost as he buys the linen, uses his tomb, his personal cost as he approaches Pilate. Presumably that could be very dangerous sticks his head up from the parapet of respectability and, and makes a stand in some sense for Jesus. Which, which is a helpful reminder that sometimes we don't expect the kind of people whom the Lord calls to himself to be those kinds of people. Sometimes there are surprises. And even from the heart of a religious establishment that seemed to be very anti the Lord Jesus. I read a thing recently of a of a, a a militant Muslim, let's call it that, who was tired of killing and seemed to have come to Christ. So there's bravery for Joseph, there's bravery for the women, at least initially. 1547, you see there's Mary and Mary, they go and see where the body's laid. The next chapter, Mary, it seems another Mary, and then Salome, they brought spices to go and anoint Jesus' body. I think in 15 they, they go see where he was so that there is no doubt for us that they've gone to the right place. So 16 they go back to where they know. I think that shows it's not a case of mistaken identity. This is facts. This is watertight. Not the wrong place. They were there just a few hours before. They may not have had sat nav, but they knew where they were going. I think that's why the comment as well on Jesus dying in 1544 and 45 is there. So that we know he was, it wasn't a resuscitation, it was a genuine resurrection that happens. But as the women anoint Jesus, it's, it's a mix. It's a mix of 
of piety yet practical. It shows their concern and their commitment, their love, their devotion for him, not unlike the woman in chapter 13 that Charlie took us through, who anoints him with nard, with perfume, expensive perfume. It shows they love him. It shows they're willing to put themselves out for him. But it's also very practical, because it's very hot. And to be frank, bodies decompose. It's a very kind action. They've they've not thought it through brilliantly because they don't quite know when they get to the tomb how they're going to remove the stone away, which maybe they just know they've got to be there. Maybe they just know that's something they have to do. And again, as many have noted, that shows something of the authenticity of the account, the the reality of human nature. If this were a fake, if it were mythology or legend, I'm afraid it wouldn't be women who would would go, go there first and find the body whose testimony in those days wouldn't stand in a court of law. And I'm afraid I think you would paint them in a slightly kinder light, that they've not planned how to get into the tomb. That just sounds a bit nuts. They've, they don't even do what the angel tells them to do, 16 verse 8. I think we would Photoshop that a bit if I was writing it. You wouldn't make this up. Which I think means... It happened. It's founded on facts, which means we can have a humble confidence. I think that's important for us, perhaps particularly here in the UK, or in Western Europe or the West, because the world wants to squeeze our faith into the realm of private and personal, and something that's nice for us. It's a poem to help us make sense of life. But Mark says it happened. Is real. It's not just true for some, it's true, true. And so when we're feeling wobbly, we can go back to these passages and we can pray and we can work through what happened. And we can be confident as we speak to friends of him. This is not just something for us. If Mark is right, it changes the world forever. not just an idea that makes sense of life for some people. So it's founded on fact. Secondly, it's all about him. And that almost sounds too obvious for me to say that. But I think what, this verse, what the verses seem to be getting at, particularly in 16, 1 to 8, is that the, the future for the disciples is more of the same. You put it like that. Yes, Jesus, physically gone. Yes, it will be different in lots of ways, but Mark wants us to see a continuity as well. Let me give you five aspects, I think, from verses 7 to 8 of what it means to follow Jesus. Just notice as well, actually, before we get there, there's a messenger from God to the women. End of Mark. Interesting, you get the messenger at the start as well, from God. John the Baptist. But anyway, verse 7 to 8. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, the angel says, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So what does it mean to follow Jesus from those two verses? I think the first one is that discipleship is active. Go, the angels tell them. The angel tells them. 
Mark's gospel has been a gospel on the move. We've seen it week on week. It is fast moving. It's always the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. It's the book of the Bible with the most instances of the word immediately. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. Immediately when the spirit saw Jesus it threw the boy into a convulsion. And just as it had been for the disciples then, well, so now there's an, an activity that happens as part of discipleship. Not just activism for activism's sake, but being deliberate and getting on with stuff. Having purpose in life. For them, the next big thing is to head to Galilee. Of course, there are differences for us. But, but I think there's a call to be deliberate or intentional or planned or active. What they've done then, well, it's more of the same now, disciples. Faith to be grounded in the everyday, in Monday morning. Whatever and wherever you spend that every day. I think the challenge for me, if I'm perfectly honest, if my faith were riding a bike too easily, I can just freewheel. That's the danger for me. But it seems to me from here that faith, at least in a sense, is active. Deliberate. Second one. It's about following Jesus together. Why do we say that? Well, they go back to Galilee. They go back to Galilee first. and That is the place where it all began. That is the place of initial new beginnings, new jobs, new names, new identities. And Galilee in Mark has a slightly different emphasis, I think, from other Gospels. So in Matthew, for example, it's Galilee of the Gentiles. You might recognise that from Christmas readings. It, It starts off there and it ends there because there's a new beginning with an emphasis on the rest of the world hearing about the Messiah. The gospel spreading to the ends of the earth. But in Mark, if you track Galilee as a theme through, it's a bit different. It seems to be the place of discipleship. The place of learning what it means to follow Jesus. The place of growth, of calling, of of faith, of compassion, of, of healing, of power, of authority... The place of every day following Jesus. And so they reassemble in Galilee. It seems to point to more of the same, more of that discipleship. Back to a familiar place, loaded with meanings and memories. It all started in Galilee, it's all going to continue in Galilee. It's a place of learning and discipleship. And it's together. And I know that that's just kind of there in the background, but they have learned and they have grown together. They have been disciples together. They are still together as they reassemble, as a community aspect. It's a group thing. It's not isolated and alone. Jesus is regathering them together in Galilee. They didn't believe him, but he had told them they would scatter. And then they would gather again there after he had risen. So chapter 14 and verse 27, You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. They should have spotted it. They should have been obedient. But they hadn't. And so the angel tells the women to go to the disciples. To go tell them to go to Galilee. Which brings us helpfully on to our next one. And that being a disciple, that discipleship is about being led by Jesus. He is the shepherd 
from 14 and verse 27. He is the shepherd who will tenderly regather the scattered sheep. Lost, broken, terrified, downhearted. He will go ahead of them as he promised and lead them to Galilee. He's completely in control of what's happening. He's completely in charge of what's going on. He is the one who gathers and who goes ahead of his sheep. Isn't that an encouragement for us in the everyday? Just for normal Christian life stuff. When we muck up, when we scatter, when we're disbelieving, when, when we get it wrong. He's not taken by surprise. He's compassionate. He's kind. He goes ahead of us. And the go-ahead word, the go-ahead word is more than just simply Jesus has gone ahead of his disciples. It's a he leads his troops type word. One of the joys I've found of parenthood is having to be brave and to deal with problems that you don't particularly want to. So imagine you're, you're having that scary walk through nighttime woods and it's daddy who goes ahead, leading the troops, protecting the front of the line, guiding them with them. Which means when we're fearful about the future, he's not the one who hangs back. He is with us, ahead of us, guiding us, leading us, going ahead. And why do they go to Galilee? Do you see? Because there they will see Jesus. Of course, as they get there, they will see Jesus. And perhaps we say, well, I can't see Jesus now. He is ascended at the right hand of the Father. He is seated. He is finished. But again, the C word is an interesting word in Mark. What does it mean to see Jesus? It's a it's a spiritual perception word in Mark. It's not just seeing with your eyes, but grasping a spiritual truth, a reality. So, for example, back in um, chapter 2, verse 5, do you remember they lower him in through the roof? And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. He perceived their faith. Which means in Galilee they will grasp something of the reality of who he is. They will understand that what he said was true and trustworthy. That he would indeed, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, die and rise again. They will see him. Should have expected it. Perhaps they should have believed him already. But at this point they are scattered and they are fearful. And yet he will gather them to Galilee. And they will perceive who he is. And they will see him. Which brings us to our final theme and that of new starts. The disciples get it wrong. You get it there with the women as well in verse 8. They don't seem to quite know what's going on. They're trembling, they're bewildered. They flee from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And, and that's how the gospel ends. And as far as we have it, verse 8 is it. 
There may have been another ending. Some people think that. That the verse 9 to 20 that you have there, people are fairly certain isn't original but has come a few centuries later. So actually the way that it ends is verse 8, which is realistic, which is gritty and earthy, which shows something of the reality of discipleship. And I think it's deliberate for Mark, personally. It shows what we're like. The secret about Jesus is finally out. And the women say nothing. Right the way through Mark, Jesus has told people whom he's healed or he's got rid of demons, don't say who I am. Don't do it. And now they're meant to say who he is. And they don't. The secret's out, but mouths are shut. But then there's this promise of a second chance. Because it's there in Peter. He was the first disciple mentioned in the Gospel. And he, I think quite deliberately, is the last disciple mentioned in the Gospel, verse 7. He started off as Simon, now he is Peter. The rock. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Why has he singled out? Why? Because he most publicly let Jesus down. We saw it with Andy a couple of weeks ago. Peter bottled it. Peter is out in the cold, around the campfire, scary servant girl, and he bottles it. He lets Jesus down, just as Jesus predicted that he would. And I think that the start of reconciliation is beginning with the mention of his name. That's why he singled out. That's the dot, dot, dot. Peter, where do we take this from here? It's the start again for Peter. It holds out hope. So it's a funny way to end the gospel. It's a mix of the reality of discipleship. As as one writer put it like this, the gospel ends with an affirmation of both Promise and failure. Promise for a future restoration of the disciples, but immediate failure for the women. Well, so Mark presents true followers who fail. But he also offers hope, because he shows that Jesus does not give up on them. I'll be honest, I love the end of Mark. I think it's brilliant. It, it points us back to so much stuff that has happened through the Gospel. But then it pulls us forward to say, well, what are you going to do about it? What does it mean to follow this kind of Jesus into the everyday? They point us back to the real events that have happened. But then what does it really mean to follow Jesus to Galilee, despite fear, to be known and to be led by him, to see him for who he is, to daily discipleship? What what happens when we get it wrong? And we do, each day. And it pulls us ahead to Monday morning. This is not just theory and ideas in Mark, but but it's a pointer to tomorrow, to daily living for him, with him, founded on his resurrection.